Hey y'all, welcome back to another episode of the OCD Family Podcast. We are continuing with part two of our series with the incomparable Dr. Jonathan Abramowitz, where we will be discussing the impact of OCD in couples. I don't know about you all, but part one was so helpful in setting up a framework for understanding OCD, understanding what accommodation truly entails, and exploring the support and resources available to the family system. If you missed part one, it's definitely worth a listen. And in typical OCD family style, we are going to build off of that rich foundation. Also, head on over to OCDFamilyPodcast.com and look for this episode's podcast for more information on John, his publications, his website, and learning more about the dynamic work he is doing. And in case you're new to these parts, here's a little bit more about me as well. I'm Nicole Morris, licensed marriage and family therapist and mental health correspondent. And let me be the first to say, welcome to the family. The OCD family, that is. I am here to create a community of support for family members, spouses, partners, parents, adult children, as there may be adult words, and chosen family of OCD sufferers and their community. I've had over 22 years of experience in the mental health field, but please note that this information does not qualify or substitute as a diagnostic evaluation, therapy, or treatment, and it is presented on an as-is basis. Please follow up with a qualified mental health provider in your area regarding concerns for yourself or loved ones. Thank you for joining us today. Now, let's get started. I am talking with Dr. Jonathan Abramowitz today. He's on the East Coast here in the States. He is working out of University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. He also has a private practice. He has so many very, very helpful books. But the book that we've talked about the most, The Family Guide to Getting Over OCD, is so perfect for our community. So thank you so much for taking the time to be with us. And thank you. Thanks for all that you've contributed to the field as well as your time with our community. I really appreciate it. Likewise. My pleasure. So this is a great opportunity to launch into talking about the complex, complicated dynamics that emerge in dating and also in marriage or partnership, these more intimate relationships. Because within the family setting, there is a little more of that power authoritative difference where, uh, you know, especially for children when they're 18 and under. But for spouses, that dynamic can play out. I think there's more information for families out there than for couples in therapy, they can get a lot of support. But just going, oh, OCD in couples, you can find relationship OCD information, which may be a play, but how to support that in the marriage or partnership. Can we talk a little bit about, first of all, <laughs> some of the differences that you might experience in this, the changes, the shifts, because perhaps you even have had an experience of OCD in the family system, but now you're dating somebody with OCD or you're married and you're impacted by that. How could you help somebody conceptualize some of the differences that kind of grow and blossom when you are going into those intimate relationships? Yeah. Well, so when you're in an intimate relationship with someone, then you, you know, a part of that relationship is taking care of them, right? When you, when you love them, you want to do what you can for them to make them happy. Mm -hmm. 
And when the person has OCD, it can be really tricky because do I make them happy by relieving their distress here in the moment when, when they're anxious about, did I leave the door unlocked and they're begging you to go down and check when you're tired and half asleep, you know, at, at, at night. Right. So I can, I can do that for my partner and make them feel you know, better right there in the moment. And that seems like a loving thing to do, mm -hmm. but that's in the long run, that's just encouraging the, the OCD symptoms because that pattern will continue, right? My, my partner is going to continue to ask me to do that because it works. It makes them feel better. It makes them feel reassured. Mm -hmm. Then on, you know, on the flip side, what, what I would say is the most loving thing to do is to help your partner to learn, you know, that they don't need that reassurance, but that's something that in order to do that, you have to say to your partner, I love you. And I realize that you're anxious, but I'm not going to check for you anymore because that's only making the OCD worse. And because I love you, I want to help you get over the OCD. Right. But then that can lead to arguments. And, you know, that's where couples based OCD treatment comes in, where the therapist has the opportunity to educate both partners and get everyone on the same page so that that person with OCD understands that what their loved one without OCD doing really is a loving thing, even though it's kind of that tough love. And I'm not a big fan of that expression, tough love, but I think people can relate to that. Mm hmm. Yeah. yeah. And I, in terms of the couples, so this is where it can get a little tricky sometimes because say you're coming in and you're having struggles with your spouse or your partner and you don't even realize it's OCD. And if you happen to luck out and go to a therapist that you're talking and they go, oh, that sounds like there's some OCD at play. This can be challenging because first of all, going home and going, so my therapist said, you have OCD. That usually doesn't go over well. Secondly, there may be some resistance at times coming in and having some of that psychoeducation and that support because, well, you're, you're this person's therapist and you've already judged me coming in and you're, you know, I don't, these are some common problems that we face with couples in general that can happen. But also within OCD, Especially if neither partner realized OCD was at play, maybe you were very aware anxiety lived in the relationship, but never realized it was OCD. That learning curve, both for the sufferer and for the partner, can be pretty big. And it can be a challenge for both parties to buy in or be on the same page about that. Agreed. Yep. That's, you know, fortunately... Many couples are on the same page and many couples do recognize that, you know, this is OCD. More and more, I think OCD is becoming, you know, recognized in our culture. People know what it is, although I, I should go back on that just a little bit because I think there are a lot of people that, you know, think things are OCD that really aren't. But I think still, you know, compared to maybe 20, 30 years ago, many more people understand OCD. And in our work, and we've done research at the, on this at the University of North Carolina, most couples are interested in learning how to work together. Yeah. Um, that said, we did see some couples that just could not mm -hmm. get their act together to be on the same team around this, whether it was the partner without OCD who just had to use that logic and 
you know, kind of try to talk their loved one into it or would get really frustrated and couldn't contain their emotions. Or the person with OCD that just refused to, you know, to see it any other way. And this is it's my way or the highway. And mm -hmm. uh, But for the most part, we find that when we're able to help them communicate with one another and express their thoughts and feelings tactfully to one another, it, it's, it can be done where we can get folks on the same page and working together. And it's often a very rewarding experience for both partners and a growing experience and a together experience where they learn, you know, that they can manage as a team, they can overcome, you know, really big barriers. And we've seen that in couples where they have really that that's something that their relationship just kind of builds from there. But it's not everybody. It's not everybody, but I, I think that's a great point. And if you have somebody that walked into your office, I mean, getting to that point, the, the chances are they're not completely refusing because that takes a lot right. to get them to walk into that office or even in a telehealth setting to to sync up into that meeting. It takes a lot of vulnerability and it's it's not easy in any situation when you're coming. A lot of people come into therapy in kind of that reactive state of this is how everything has hit the fan. And this is kind of our last step before I don't know what. And so having them come in there, usually they there is a lot of motivation. Let's talk about accommodation and how that shows up in couples, because you talked about it a little bit with, can you go check this, make sure I, I did shut the door, lock the door, you know, an accommodation of that sort. Sometimes, too, there's that discussion that that partners can do so well. <laughs> so it could be I'm trying to talk to you about something and the partner says, I'm not going to accommodate your OCD. And the OCD sufferer says, I'm not this isn't my OCD. This is me saying this. And they're like, no, you want reassurance. You're not doing your homework. What would you say in terms of helping both of these partners learn about accommodation and communicating about and around the OCD? Because not everything is OCD and we need to validate that. You know, there's life outside of OCD. That's the point. We want to be able to live to those values. Yeah. One of the things that we teach early on in couples therapy for OCD is how partners should share their thoughts and feelings with one another. So very often when OCD comes up in for a couple, the urge is for the, the partners to try to solve the problem, to jump in. The person without OCD wants to try to tell the person with OCD what they should do, what they shouldn't do. Mm -hmm person with OCD wants to tell the other person what they should do. Mm -hmm. And instead, the first thing we want to do is help them to just share their thoughts and feelings. This is what it's like for me. This is what I'm experiencing right now. Mm -hmm. And then the other partner to kind of listen and, and actively listen and say, oh, I get it. You're going through this. And just because, by the way, just because you hear what the other person is saying doesn't mean you have to agree. So the person right. without OCD might not agree that the floor is deadly to, to eat a piece of a grape off the floor, for example, but to their partner, it seems deadly. And so at least to put yourself in their shoes and say, okay, I get it for you. This is really scary. You're really scared right now. Mm -hmm. And similarly for the person with OCD to hear their partner out and say, I get it. You're really frustrated right now about this OCD, right? So if I'm the non-OCD partner, I might say to my loved one with OCD, 
hey, this whole OCD thing, this is really frustrating for me. I feel like this is getting in the way and causing all these kinds of problems. And then the person with OCD says, you know, I get it. This is really frustrating for you. And the idea is just for the couple to share their thoughts with each other, share their feelings with each other so that they can at least understand what the other person is going through. And it turns out that when we teach couples how to do that, that helps to get them on the same page mm-hmm. for how to start to move forward using exposure and response prevention. You know, we talked in part one about the parents getting caught in this guilt cycle. And I think when it when you come down to it, too, in the partners, when that defensiveness rises up and it's, no, this isn't the way it went. No, this is what you said. You know, I think in that or that desire to solve, I think there is sometimes that underlining guilt. You know, am I am I at fault here? Did I do something to make your OCD worse? Or is this ever going to be different? And is it what have I done to contribute to that? How, you know, maybe I have just accommodated, you know, and getting stuck in that guilt cycle certainly can come up. I think it often when we're talking about conflict resolution, people's sense of responsibility and where did I maybe mess up? And it's vulnerable to say that. And now I feel uh, anxious and I don't know how to handle this distress. That that can really go to the root of a lot of the different conflicts. And so especially within OCD, when OCD is a third kind of party in your private relationship here, it can get pretty crowded. And so being able to actively listen, I think that was a really important point. And that's a hard thing to do. Even if OCD is not in the picture, to have your spouse go, hey, I'm upset because this and it made me feel like that. And you just to be like, yeah, I right. I hear you and not be as, like, but that's not what I meant. As human beings, mm-hmm. that's what we do. We figure out problems and we solve, we try to solve them. And, right. But that's, and, and that can be really helpful if you're trying to figure out childcare or finances or how to manage, you know, uh, you know, whatever, in-laws and things like that. But when it comes to dealing with, you know, emotional difficulties like OCD, the first step is to be able to listen, understand what the person's going through. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. And for that to be mutual, not just you you as as the care support, as the spouse, as the lover. Going, okay, I'll hear you. It's also asserting yourself and saying, hey, I'm needs in this too. <laughs> That's exactly right. Yep. My my grandmother used to always say, you know, it's a two-way street, right? Relationships are a two-way street. And um, and it's, it's very true. And OCD affects and can be really frustrating for both partners. Yeah. And they, we want to teach them how to listen to each other. Right. And if it's just if it were to be a one way street indefinitely, you're going to build a lot of resentment. Right. You're going to be like, I'm I'm, no. And I think that's something that where we can get caught up in the family example, like we were talking about in part one, because we we go, yeah, it's two way street, but I'm the parent. So I should be taking care of them. So it's like, oh, it's kind of one way. And it's like, no, it's still it's a reciprocal relationship. There is a different it's dynamic. Different. It's different. It's still a two-way street, but, but it is. Yeah, it is different. That's and uh, you know the parent, especially if it's a you know a younger child. Yeah, 
the 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 parent is very much in the driver's seat. Maybe it's a little bit more of a one-way street when it's when it's a, a younger child. But yeah, for a, a adolescent, teenager, and certainly adult child, um, it is a two-way street. Although when one of the things that I talk about in the book, and one of the things that I help parents to to understand, even parents of adult children, mm-hmm. which is not this is not the case in couples, mm-hmm. right? But when it, when it's a parent. You've got leverage, right? When the person with OCD depends on you for something, even if it's an adult and they depend on you for accommodation or for, you know, finances or things like that, it's important to understand where you have that leverage and to be able to, you know, use that in a respectful way to, to get what you want. Couples should not do that. That, that, is, the, that is the sign of a An not a great relationship. Yeah. <laughs> Right. That's there's manipulation going on. Dicey very quickly. Yeah. But that that's a great point, because then you have situations where you might have serial relationships like, okay, that didn't work out. So I'm leaving and I go into this new relationship. Okay, that didn't work out. uh, I'm leaving. I'm going into this new relationship. And can you prevent that? I think a lot of concerns that I'll hear from couples are, well, what if this ends in divorce? Because I'm really upset and a little bit resentful about how things are right now, but I don't want it to end in divorce. And if I say something, they're going to leave me. That is that is one of the big fears. Also, sometimes we run into this situation where someone will be very upset. If you don't accommodate what I need, I don't think I can live. And if you leave me, I don't think I can live without you. And so there starts to be this fear of, well, they're going to be, they're kind of suicidal. And if I don't accommodate, they're going to hurt themselves. And then that's on me and I can't live with myself if if that happens. Can we speak to that dynamic? Because that's, it shows up in in families as well, especially with teens, but even sometimes younger people would be surprised to know. But also, this can definitely happen in partner relationships. So can we speak to that a little bit of what to do? I mean, you you provide some great examples in the book, but what to do when someone's like, okay, if you don't help me there, I'm going to hurt myself. Yeah. Well, the first thing is that these kinds of situations require a therapist mm-hmm. to be able to intervene and to teach first its communication skills. And there are fair and unfair ways for couples to communicate to each other and, and the messages that couples, you know, that we want couples, members of couples to send to one another. And so learning how to express those feelings in healthy ways so that, you know, those kinds of things are less likely to happen. There's less of that. But we also want to take those kinds of things seriously. And and if, you know, if you have a, a partner or a child or, or, you know, adult who is making these kinds of threats, we need to take them seriously. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean giving in. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean, you know, uh, uh, allowing yourself to be kind of run off your game in terms of not accommodating. You can still not accommodate and the person can still, you know, express thoughts about harming themselves, but there are things that that you can do. For example, one good way of helping the person learn how to manage these kinds of, you know, whether it's they become so anxious and they start to make threats about harming themselves, suicide, things like that, is to call 911 when when that comes up. I love you. And as much as as I love you, I can't let this go without doing something about it. And and I don't know, I'm not a mental health professional. I don't know how to 
how to deal with this. So I'm going to call 911 or we're going to go to the emergency room and we're going to let the professionals deal with this. And what that does is A, it does two things. It sends a message. I love you and I care about you. Right. And I'm mm -hmm. going to respond when you talk about harming yourself. Right. But it also sends the message of if I talk about suicide, it's not going to be fun. I'm right. Having 911, having the police show up and all that, that is not a fun experience. And going to the emergency room, waiting around, having an evaluation, that's not a fun experience either. So it, it kind of, it doesn't reward right. talking about suicide by giving in and, okay, if you say suicide, then I'll accommodate for you. Right. Yeah. Right? And, and I think that that's a way to thread the needle where mm -hmm. you're showing that you care and, and you're, you're attending to what they're saying, but you're also not giving in. Right. And, and again, I think that's a very loving thing to do. Very, very loving. I mean, their safety is number one. And if it gets to that level, even if you're like, I don't know if they're threatening that, would they really do it? Well, so err on the side of caution. Err on the side of caution. Safe. You're not, in most cases, you're not a mental health professional. So you right. can't make that call. And, you know, it would be terrible to say you're just, you're just bluffing. You know, there's the window, right? Right. Uh, God forbid. At right. the same time, if they, if they are bluffing, then you're giving in and you're just doing the accommodating and that's not that's what that's just reinforcing the bluffing right and and you know speaking of that you know i think the other important piece is if you say and you you make this clear you know if if somebody we're not punishing anybody for saying if they are thinking suicidal thoughts i think it's a huge strength and it takes incredible strength and courage for somebody to say that so we're going to take it seriously. And if they weren't, they're going to learn like, boy, that was not worth that. I don't want to do that because they're going to really react to that. Exactly. That's, yeah. you, you said it very well, Nicole. That's exactly right. But it's also important that you fall through if you say you're going to do that. Because sometimes we run into this situation where it's like, hey, if you're going to say that, I'm, I'll just take you to the hospital right now. But then the next time they say it and they're like, oh, no, and they, and they accommodate, like take them to the hospital. Take follow them. through. Follow through. Through is very not only with this, but really right. with any of the stuff that we're talking about. If you and again, that's another thing that I see a lot as as an obstacle for partners, parents to be successful. You know, with managing in situations like this, is that they'll say one thing and they'll do something else, and that just sends the message to the person with OCD. Oh, I don't need to take them seriously mm -hmm. if I just kind of up the ante enough. Mm -hmm. I'll. I'll get what I what I want. And again, that doesn't help the situation at all. So you want to be, and I talk about this in the book, you want to plan very carefully, meticulously what you're going to do, mm -hmm. how you're going to do it so that when the situation arises, you are ready for action and you're not just, you know, talking. Yeah, that's a really great point because we can think of how this happens with children and parents, too, how the ante can get up, you know, in situations, particularly as the children get older and more knowledgeable and feel like, hey, I understand everything now. You can get into these back and forth, but especially with partners that Annie, well, you know, we can keep challenging each other and kind of huffing up our chest and, and puffing up and it can get to places where, you know, afterwards, most people are like, Oh, gosh, like that just got out of control quickly. 
And so we think about that in the best cases when conflict can get out of hand. Now we add, like you said, with OCD, this is like life or death level of threat for the OCD sufferer. So if they were going to take, if they were going to go to town on something that didn't even really matter over here, imagine how much more convicted they're going to be if they really fear. And they do. They really fear. They're not making that up. They really fear. And I think that's a really important point that, you know, we can say, you know, they're bluffing or whatever, but really it's important for folks to remember that when someone with OCD gets really upset, when they talk about self-harm, when they talk about, you know, you don't love me and all this kind of thing, that is driven by fear. Like you're saying, that is driven by anxiety. And it is all about trying to get that feeling of safety that OCD makes them crave so much. And Mm -hmm. people are capable of doing all sorts of things in that fight or flight kind of moment where they feel like, yeah, this is a crucial, uh, you know, uh, desperate situation. Yeah. And you think about like, you know, the stress responses happening in the brain. I'm sure we've all heard these stories from time to time where you know, somebody will be in a really, really dire situation and they are overcome in the moment and they're able to to somehow masterfully get through a situation because they have so much cortisol pumping. And how do they even do this? And their adrenaline's going. And it's like that is constant yeah. for the OCD sufferer. And so they're going to be a little more irritable because they're constantly taxed by this. You're more irritable because you have been living with this third party in the relationship as well. And so recognizing, and this is where I do think in treatment, it can be really, really healing just to realize, hey, we're on the same side of this. It's not us against each. It's not you against me. It's us against OCD. That's right. And by that, yeah, I'm not going to participate in this way. And uh, and we can have some clear rules that if the fight gets dirty, (laughs) there's going to be some natural consequences. Whether it's going to the hospital, whether it's, you know, and it's not always to that extreme, but I know it it does come up. It can. And and it can be, certainly, because if you think of someone that's perpetually been living in the state of terror, that feeling of hopelessness is very common. And you talked about that, too. We've talked about it here on the podcast about comorbidities. Anxiety is obviously a very big one. Depression is a very big one as well. And that feeling of, I think you even put it in the book, hopelessness and helplessness, it's, it's so pervasive in the relationship. And so we add that on to now we're looking at a marriage relationship or partnership. And it's just, even in dating, it can be hell. It really can. And so it's really important to understand that your opponent is not each other. Your opponent is the OCD, and that's for any OCD sufferer, realizing, like, this is not you, like, you're, like, (laughs) this terrible person. You're not. This is your brain stuck in this thought loop cycle, and there is a lot of hope available to get out of it and to, to have some reduction, if not even remission, in your symptomology, which is huge. I feel like, I don't know, maybe you would know because you, you, you've done so much research in the anxiety field at large, but I feel like statistics for OCD treatment and the prognosis is so much higher than what I hear often in, 
anxiety in general for like generalized anxiety or depression. I feel like ERP is really, really effective. And I don't always see, we can't always give that information to people coming in. Yeah, well, you know, your depression probably will go away. I don't know if it will go away, you know, and it's not that OCD goes away, but we can manage it. We can sit with it. We can thrive irregardless of the fact that you have OCD or not. So do you know, in terms of how this stacks up to some of the other mental health disorders, and I know there are a lot of comorbidities, so it might be just too hard to tell, but ERP is pretty, pretty effective. We have some pretty good outcomes for OCD sufferers. We do. I would say that OCD is among the success stories in the treatment of of mental health disorders. And for a long time, over 50 years, we have data, good you know, data showing that this can be an effective treatment. That said, as I mentioned before, it certainly is not a panacea. It doesn't help everybody. It is challenging to do. Mm-hmm. And you need to have a therapist who really gets it and ha- understands how to implement the treatment. It's really tricky because it is so personalized. Mm-hmm. Um, everyone who has OCD has a little bit of a their own spin on the problem. They have their own, their obsessions and compulsions are very much linked to their personal values and things that they hold dear. Mm -hmm. And so the treatment has to be tailored, you know, to that. And if a therapist doesn't understand all the different presentations of, of OCD and doesn't have a, you know, good experience working with folks with OCD, that doesn't always go well. Right, right. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And finding a lot of people walk in and, you know, they might present a relational conflict in a couple session. And I think a lot of therapists with good intentions could say, oh, let's work on your, you know, communication and your active listening. And again, those things are not bad. We use those tools, certainly within our treatment model as well. But if they miss the point and they end up just reinforcing some of these higher level compulsions, then that's not helpful, right? The therapist can actually reinforce the problem if they don't recognize it as OCD. And I think that is improving, as you had pointed out, but I also think it has a long way to go. And I know that was true for me before I got into the world of OCD. I was like, wow, I've never had a client with OCD. And then I learned more and I went, oh, Nicole, like I, I can see now where a lot of generalized anxiety, if we kind of go a little, just a little bit deeper, you can see, you can see that OCD thought cycle a lot of times in those generalized anxiety cases. And so it's not to say that every case of anxiety is OCD, certainly not but I do think a lot in treatment, I think a lot of anxiety cases that are OCD can be treated in other ways that don't help address the root problem. So with that, I mean, one of the reasons I, I started this podcast, I am one of, you know, I am an ERP specialist. If you look up around the area, you could go 100 miles to maybe find another. 
It's sometimes hard to find access to qualified ERP people. We don't know if we're dealing with OCD sometimes, so we don't even know that we were supposed to find an ERP person or something to that effect. And so I know that can be a challenge. No CD is a great resource. That's an app that has usually has licensed therapists in every state. IOCDF also has a provider search where you can type in your area, and, and that's worldwide and you can see who's around you and able to treat. In a day and age of telehealth, there's greater accessibility if you're in the same state where somebody's licensed or in a country and how that works in individual provinces, I'm not sure. But like that's it's very, very helpful in this day and age. You are discussing that part of the treatment that you are doing with those older adults, with those couples, similar to space, but space is usually with younger children. Is there a name for the protocol or the program that you work with those couples and the older adults with? You know, I think it's based. No, there, there's not a typical, there's not a name like light space or anything like that, but it's based on, you know, it, it kind of pulls together exposure, the principles of exposure and response prevention. Mm-hmm. The principles of effective communication, the principles of 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 parenting strategies, and in particular parenting older you know kids. Although to some extent, the same rules that you would use to parent younger kids apply to parenting adults who are living under your roof. Right. So what assertiveness, communication skills, parenting skills. When you pull a lot of these things together, that's you know. That kind of is is what we use when yeah. we're working with these folks. Yeah, yeah, and I I know with working ERP in a case when we were talking about you were talking kind of the average four months or sixteen sessions, a lot of progress can be made. And I know I've worked with so many clients where you know often you make kind of a fear hierarchy at the beginning of treatment. And I've talked with the CD family community about at the beginning of treatment you're going to kind of Use your your SUD scale to gauge the level of distress you feel with different obsessions, um, and you identify what compulsions you're going to try and resist and give up in those in those exposures. But often we get a little bit into treatment, you know, maybe even a month in, and we're like, we need to redo this because the calibration of these really intense things that has sometimes bothered people for decades have drastically shifted and and that's pretty powerful and so being able to think about that too even in the dynamic of couples or if you're an OCD sufferer that say has been through many relationships and you're like I'm just doomed to fail because this is going to play out in every relationship you're not any more doomed to fail than any of the rest of us we're all people we're all just trying to kind of get the hang of this and you there's a lot of hope for you that some of those dynamics can change so i think it's pretty powerful when you're working with like a couple, would you find something around that same four month mark is generally can do a lot to help propel the couple or what does that course of treatment usually look like on average for you? Yeah. So we developed and tested a a program that uh, was 16 sessions and the first couple of sessions are assessment and education. Mm -hmm. And by the way, this was the first, the first four weeks were twice a week therapy sessions. Okay. Right. So that four weeks, so that's eight sessions. And then the next ones were, were weekly. Okay. Right. So 16 sessions, the first four weeks were twice a week. Mm-hmm. And that's because we're doing a lot of education. Mm-hmm. We're teaching the couple communication skills, and then we're introducing exposure and developing the exposure hierarchy or list, and then, you know, introducing the exposure. 
And then we want the couple practicing exposures on their own between mm-hmm. sessions more and more. And that's where we space it out to, to weekly mm-hmm. sessions. And that's really, you know, the, the first couple of sessions, education, com- learning communication skills. Then we get into exposure in the session. We teach the couple how to do exposure. And then as we go along, we work more on reducing accommodation, increasing exposure, and kind of passing more and more the the work off to the couple to do mm-hmm. between sessions because we want them to become a team. And the therapy sessions are more used as coaching. Mm-hmm. Let's hear how it went. Let's problem solve. You know, let's figure out which, what you're going to do next. And then, you know, planning it out with the couple and the couple executes on their on their own. Right. So they're driving the situation and we're there to kind of help them stay in their lane and make sure that they're working on, together in the same lane. <laughs> right. Not going on roundabouts. <laughs> As OCD loves a good roundabout. But yeah, I think that's a really helpful explanation because sometimes I think People are discouraged to even try treatment because they're like, first of all, can't teach an old dog new tricks. Second of all, I've heard it over and over again. I can't change my partner. So you have to either change you or change it, you know, and you are changing you. You're changing your response to this situation or the thought around the situation rather than the situation. Uh, And so and that does produce very dramatic change. It can. And it's it's pretty powerful. It's part of what is so rewarding about doing this work is that we don't need to see these dramatic shifts to know like it's worth helping people. But it's undeniable that this helps, that this brings hope to people. And so knowing that even in 16 weeks, so much can be accomplished. It's, it's with, with hard work. With you know, hard with- work. With hard work and hard work from the therapist and the person with OCD and the family members, we don't want to gloss over the fact that this this is a challenging, you know, for some folks, this is one of the hardest things that they've ever had to do. But, you know, yeah, you you put that effort in and what the research tells us is that you're likely to see some some benefit and very often a lot of benefit, but it comes with hard work. You, you, You have to put in the effort. You have to put into it what you get out of it. Yeah, absolutely. And it is, I think that scares people on at the face value. But again, you know, something that I reiterate is living with OCD for this That's long. pretty bad too. <laughs> That's pretty hard. Yeah. yeah. And, and feeling tortured by what if I did hurt somebody? What if I'm going, you know, what if, what does this mean about me? And getting caught up in that. What about the situation where, you know, we talked about learning how to communicate, actively listen. What about the situation where you have the partner who is like, I I don't think this is what's going on with me at all. Screw this. I'm not participating in it. Like, what do you do to help support that person that's like, hey, I love them. I don't want to leave them, but I'm going crazy. Like, what what can I do? Because my partner is, is treatment resistant. Either because they're so in such a severe kind of place in their OCD or they're just feeling hopeless at this point. Yeah, right. And and there are people who get to a point where the therapy seems too daunting. And so they, you know, they feel like, I, I don't want to go through this. Um, mm-hmm. Or they're feeling hopeless, right? I don't deserve this, things like that. 
Mm-hmm. And so you're right. If you're if you're uh, in a relationship with someone like that, a partnership, for example, you know there are things that you can do to that you don't have to give in, right? Just because your loved one is is not doing the therapy doesn't mean that you know you have to give in and and accommodate the OCD. We cannot force other people to change their behavior. We can't. We can't tell other people, well, we can tell other people what we want them to do, but they don't have to listen. And, and so, yeah, we, we cannot force. And so instead, we want to focus on our own behavior as the partner of someone who does not, who is not engaging in treatment. All we can do is work on our own behavior. And you want to do what's going to be healthy for your loved one with OCD. And as mm-hmm. we talked about before, there is nothing unhealthy about the kind of anxiety that people with OCD have. It's short-term. It's not dangerous. There's nothing unhealthy about intrusive thoughts. There's nothing unhealthy about uncertainty. And there is everything healthy about teaching that person by changing your own behavior, Mm -hmm. teaching them that they can manage. So, you know, we do encourage people who they have a partner that's unwilling to, to get help. Well, you know, that means that it's not going to make things easy, but if you're going to stay in this relationship and you don't want to accommodate the OCD, here's what to do. You don't have to, you know, you don't have to accommodate it. I will say that that makes the relationship difficult, right? That's a big ticket item where the couples disagree. Yeah. And that can make it really difficult for the relationship to continue if that OCD is, you know, playing a role as a, as a third wheel. That said, there, there are couples that, do manage that way. Yeah. Um, there are couples where they've kind of agreed as a couple, okay, this is what, this is the amount of OCD we're willing to live with. And here's the boundary of where we're not willing to live with it. So again, that might be something working with a therapist, you're going to be able to learn communication skills, learn some problem solving and decision-making so that you're hopefully working together. But there are times when the person without OCD kind of has to unilaterally say, I, I'm, I've had it up to here with this. I'm not giving in. I love you. Mm-hmm. And, and because I, I love you. <laughs> and because I love you, I'm not going to give in. Yeah. Um, and sometimes the person without OCD, that actually helps them and says, well, you know what? You're right. And I can do this and I am going to get help. And then in other cases, it, it doesn't. Yeah, it's one of those tricky dynamics because when that happens like in a parent-child relationship or say, you know, if the child's resistant, but the parent not accommodating is by proxy. And that's kind of what we talk about with space of, you know, you being able to promote that message and make the announcement that you're going to be able to do this. And I haven't given you the opportunity to let you realize you can. So we're going to do that. And that's how it's going to go. That's different than when it's a partner and you're like, well, you know what? You may want to avoid doing this, but <laughs> I'm not going to participate in the avoidance of this anymore. And that can that can cause some real tension and real conflict for sure. If the OCD sufferer is refusing to really engage in the treatment, but you're also like, hey, I'm going to draw this boundary. Ultimately, though, are you living in the relationship? Are you participating? in the relationship. This is something we just recently, not too long ago, discussed relationship OCD on the podcast. And it's like, are you having a relationship in your head or are you, have, are you engaging in the relationship? 
it's really tough. So when you have a, a partner that is not willing to deal with it or is also just maybe stuck, not it's not always an issue of I'm willing or not willing. They're, they're terrified. They're stuck. Being able to sit there and go, okay, what can I do to actually participate in the relationship? If they didn't have OCD, would I take this? <laughs> I think that's a really good hard and fast rule that we can go back to. Like, would I would I accept the same behavior in a relationship if they didn't have OCD? Yeah. So I really like that that hard and fast rule. Well, this has been very, very helpful. Thank you so much for taking the time to discuss family and children, parents, partners, all of that. It's tricky work, but it's very, very rewarding, not only as a therapist, but, you know, just a, it's can't be said enough for people out there suffering or seeing their loved ones suffering. You know, there is a lot of hope available. And yes, this may not work for everyone, but it works for a lot of people. And also, I, I should probably mention that there, there's going to be different times, because for any of us, where we're going to be m more open and receptive to something, and things can change, right? That's malleable. Like, we can not be ready to face something now, and in two years, okay, we're going to do this. It's, you know, I'm going to do it. And so, That's true. even if it's right now, it feels like, nope, we're not going to do treatment. That doesn't mean it will always stay that way. And you, you as the loved one, have a lot more ability to speak into the situation or not speak <laughs> into the situation and institute some change. So that's, that's really empowering, I think. True. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. Well, thank you so much. The book that we've talked about, The Family Guide to Getting Over OCD, Reclaim Your Life and Help Your Loved One is so perfect for our community. And so I'm going to also provide more of that information on this episode's blog post where you can find out more information about John. You can learn more about ERP. You can find a link to his book and everything else. So thank you so much. I really, really appreciate you taking the time out of your busy schedule. And I appreciate your time. And Hey, I would love to talk again at some point in the future, I'm sure, as as Sounds good. studies, research, everything continues to gain traction. So thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Sure thing, Nicole. Thanks for again for having me. Absolutely. Anytime. Anytime, John. <laughs> thank you for that. Okay, so I just have to say, I am I'm so honored to be able to hold this space for these important conversations with you all. When I dreamed about creating this community, I brainstormed so many aspects of what could be helpful, what resources are available, support, and dream guests. My Behavioral Therapy Training Institute certification, yeah, say that three times fast, expanded my network with amazing colleagues and researchers in the OCD field. And I was optimistic with regards to how I could coordinate bringing these important voices together to help the OCD family community. But still, I've been blown away by the graciousness of my guests. And when I found the family guide to getting over OCD, already knowing and trusting the amazing work that John has done, in addition to checking all the boxes of what this podcast is trying to support, I just decided to reach out on a whim and ask if he would be willing to take a seat at our peripheral family table. And I have to say, 
I'm so glad I risked being vulnerable and trying something new because here I am wrapping up the second of two dynamic episodes. And it really emphasizes the fact that we are not alone in this fight. And whether you're a person with lived experience, a family member, a partner, a clinician, a researcher, we are better together. Even if you're completely new and have no direct experience with OCD in any of these capacities, the reality that you're here and showing up makes this community stronger. It's important to learn about what we don't know, and your willingness to walk alongside us is cherished and seen. So thank you. And so for my application point for today, it's simply this. Try something new. You know, I've never done a podcast before, but I created one anyway. I'm not a techie person, but I've quickly learned, I like to think, how to record audio, edit sound waves, build a website, integrate plugins, you name it. Dare I admit, I didn't even have a TikTok account, and now I'm creating them, let alone running Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter to dish out our OCD family goodness. But I tried it, and I'm still trying it. And I'm pretty sure there are things we can point to in our own lives that are worth giving a shot. Maybe it's a new hobby or an endeavor that you've really wanted to start, but fear of failure has kept you from trying. Maybe it's trying ERP or supporting your loved one in their therapy, even though it's scary. Maybe it's following through and enduring the distress that inevitably surfaces when we stop engaging in our loved one's compulsions. It's okay to say, not today, and that's okay. The distress is not fun, but it won't harm you. It won't harm your loved ones. And while I know some days probably feel like it is just not worth the fight, the trouble to go against the grain, or to try something new, you never know what kindness, support, or help might find you on the other side. And hey, will it work? Maybe it will. Maybe it won't. But you'll never know if you don't try. So go ahead. You've got this. We've got this. And we are better together. Thank you for joining me and our OCD family community. If you enjoyed what you heard today, please like and subscribe to the OCD Family Podcast wherever you enjoy your podcasts. Did you find this content helpful? Please consider leaving a review. The more people that know they're not alone, the better. For more information regarding today's podcast, please visit ocdfamilypodcast.com and remember to join the email list while you're there. It will provide you with the most up-to-date information, resources, and the download on the family chatter. Oh yeah, nothing says family like working through our miscommunication. That's right, I went there. And you can too at ocdfamilypodcast.com.